Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Librarius. This is your chief librarian, Chris Morgan, and I am happy to have you join me for this love letter to the Horus Heresy. I have a couple of neat segments for you guys today. The first and largest segment, of course, is my book review of Warhawk. Warhawk is book six of the Siege of Terror series, which is basically the bookend to the very large 50-plus novel-long Horus Heresy series. The book review itself takes about an hour, and it's going to be most of the episode today. But it's a big book, there's a lot of stuff going on, so it demands some attention. The second segment is going to be a little blurb on gaming in the Horus Heresy right now. And it's going to be kind of a state of the game slash my current thoughts. And I will additionally be talking a little bit about the first round of gaming that I did in the Horus Heresy campaign that started off just this weekend. So very excited about that. I had a really good time and it's just one of those moments where I'm going to selfishly geek out about something that I really, really, really enjoy. If I do this so much, I should probably start a podcast. Hmm. Geekery jokes aside, there's been quite a bit that's been going on with me and the hobby the last couple of weeks. Some of it I'm not quite ready to share with you guys, but other bits I am. So let's go ahead and start with some just straight up hobby progress. Despite the busyness of getting ready to move, I have at least been able to still spend some time working on my fleet. And this is a bit of an interesting experiment for me because I actually have some more Battlefleet Gothic ships in a box somewhere. But these were ships that I painted years and years ago, and I wasn't able to find them in storage before I knew that I would need them. But as with most things that I've done in the past, I'm sure that if I were to pull them out and put them next to the stuff that I've been working on, they probably wouldn't hold up super well. Of course, the upside to that is I will still get a chance to update them once I can unpack in the new house. Either way, I still needed to have some ships for the Diadem War campaign. And I was able to get some ships ready for myself. And a little while ago, when we did our sort of intro meeting, our session zero, I was able to hand off some of the spaceships for the other players to work on, convert, and do whatnot with. But the game day is approaching. It's going to be Saturday the 30th of October, and we are learning a new rule set, so we're starting a little bit small. I wanted to make sure that I had the ships ready that I needed, so I've got one heavy cruiser, two light cruisers, and three torpedo boat destroyers that I've been painting up. And the way that I set up the scenario is that I wanted to have everybody more or less have the same ships so far as rules were concerned, so that everybody would basically have the same ability as everybody else and that there wouldn't be really like an unfair advantage of somebody who knew how to make a custom ship or, you know, min-max or whatever. We're all going to be playing with the same thing. And I don't intend to limit everybody's freedom to create stuff in the future as they get more experienced, more comfortable with it. That could actually add some interesting depth to the campaign as well if people get really into it. Of course, it's there's plenty of like cut and paste template ships that we could also use as well that are just as easy to plug and play. So that's one of the advantages of using the full thrust rule set is that it's fairly simple, easy to understand. There is built-in ship customization if you want to use it, but if you don't want to use it, there's plenty of viable pre-built stuff that you can use as well. So we'll be starting with those. I actually ordered some of the old full thrust bases from a store in England that still had some in stock, and I'm planning on doing some magnetization and stuff so that I can have the ships magnetized to the tips of the bases and maybe switch ships out or something if I need to. I don't know. It, it'll it be an interesting hobby project. Anything with magnets always makes me nervous, but the nice thing about ship-to-ship combat on the tabletop is that 
if you have a magnet sort of on the underside of your ship. Unless it's like really huge, nobody's going to be able to tell. So but another nice thing about these bases is because they're pewter, they're very bottom heavy. So it'll help the ships be a bit more stable. So once I get those bases and I can get them painted up and you know, they've already got all of the markings for ship navigation and stuff on the bottoms of them, then I'll be able to take some nicer pictures. But as you've probably seen, if you've been watching this on YouTube, I've put up a few of the pictures here. And there's also, of course, some progress pics that are up on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash brother Captain Morgan. So that's been the biggest hobby progress thing that I can actually share with you guys at this time. There is another project I have going and I don't want to overhype it too much by just teasing it over and over again. Nevertheless, I'm really excited about it and it's going to take a bit of time to get put together, especially with everything else that's been going on. But suffice to say that I have a, an interesting narrative gaming exercise that I am looking very much forward to sharing with all of you guys when the time comes and you will see sort of the full work in progress to completion thing that I'm doing with this when I'm ready to announce it. So look forward to that. And in the meantime, spaceship. So far as other news goes, the Age of Sigmar War Games for Warriors event happened the other weekend and they were able to raise over a thousand more dollars for the charities, which which is fantastic. There were some really cool Age of Sigmar armies on display. I, I happen to think that as much as Age of Sigmar has a little bit less popularity than Warhammer 40k overall, generally speaking, I find that because of the nature of just the over the top cool models that Age of Sigmar has, that the hobby side tends to represent really well. And that remains true for the pictures I saw of this event. I thought it was really cool. I did not participate because I actually don't have a big enough army for Age of Sigmar and I still haven't played the new edition. But I do want to talk about Age of Sigmar sometime. So I have a group of dedicated Age of Sigmar players who have excellent armies and really are very nice and good at explaining the game to someone who's fairly new to it. So in the coming weeks, there may be an Age of Sigmar episode. Who knows? It'd be a shame not to showcase the great players who helped raise even more money for these charities. So keep an eye out for that. And of course, just a heads up for everybody going into the holiday season. It's very likely that the month of December, there probably won't be any of this show that gets released because in the beginning of the month, I am moving. And of course, the end of the month is the end of the month. So if I can get some time and I get everything set up in time so that I can record and have all of my hobby shenanigans managed, then there's a good chance that I'll be able to record and get an episode out in the month of December. But in the meantime, just don't expect too much during December and hopefully we can get ramped up again and maybe even have some bonus content ready for the new year. In as much as I know that the new year is just kind of an arbitrary way of benchmarking something and it doesn't actually, I mean, look at new year resolutions, right? It doesn't actually end up making ingrained habits change all that often. It just kind of becomes the de facto, this is when things start up again, or this is when a new thing starts and fair enough. So in the spirit of that, I, I'm hoping to kick off the new year strong with this podcast. And a large part of that is thanks to you guys, the listeners. I'm actually really pleased to hear that there appear to be a lot of people who are enjoying the show. So if you've been listening to this uh, from the beginning, or if this is your first time checking out the show, I would just like to say thank you for taking the time to enjoy this thing that I've made and put out on the internet. 
So with that out of the way, let's go ahead and get started with our first segment, the review of Warhawk. So grab your library cards, pull out your bookmarks, and get ready to step into the Librarius. forward to this welcome everybody to this segment of the chief librarian podcast and i am here with warhawk before i get too deep into this review and there's a lot to talk about i want to take a moment to once again thank my friend bill and trident wargaming for allowing me to get a copy of the collector's edition version of this book now the the sad story about this is, is I was judging the Las Vegas team tournament and I'm sitting at the judge's desk and the other judges are like, all right, once it gets pre-order time, just you know, open up your phone and we'll take care of things while you get that taken care of. Well, that's what I did. Pre-order time came around right on the clock. And by the time that the checkout screen had loaded less than two minutes later, they were all sold out. It was in my cart and everything. I hadn't been able to pay in time or even just check out in time to get this book. So I was a little bit sad, and being sad, I put out on the internet just a little bit of my frustration at the situation because I had not been able to get my hands on a single one of these limited edition books for a variety of reasons for each one. But this one, I was so close. It was in the cart. I just didn't hit check out in time, and then it was gone. And I was just thinking, man, am I ever going to get my hands on a copy of one of these? Well, that's when Bill saved the day. So thank you, Bill, and thank you, Trident Wargaming. I actually met Bill via Warhammer 30K events and games and things. He was gracious enough to step up and fill a gap left by an opening in the TO roster at an LVO one time for the Horus Heresy event, which he did at very short notice, and the event went off swimmingly. Everybody was really happy, and I'm always happy to see people who spend the money to attend events actually get something really good for what they did. And all the feedback I got from Bill's participation that year is fantastic. Anybody who's willing to sacrifice to be an event organizer and to enable the fun of other people, I think it's just not not something that many people can do. And to do it well on top of that, I think is very admirable. Once again, thanks, Bill. And this review is dedicated to you and Trident Wargaming. So on to the review. Warhawk is the sixth book in the Siege of Terror series, which is basically the bookend series to the Horus Heresy series. It continues the story that was left off at the end of that Horus Heresy War, and the Siege of Terra delivers exactly what it promises. It starts with the Void War as Horus and the traitors make their way into the Soul System and catalogs their battles against the defenders and the race against time as Horus seeks to defeat the Loyalists and kill the Emperor before the reinforcements led by Robute Gilliman can arrive to save the day. So that's a summary of the series, and this is probably not a spoiler to anybody who's even new to 40k at this point. However, at this point, as I am doing a book review for a relatively new book, I have to throw out a spoiler warning. And you can pretty much count on any book review that I do on this channel to be full of spoilers, because... 
there are specific bits in the story and specific bits of character development in particular that I really, really, really want to talk about. And it has nothing to do with just saying, oh, this happened and just laugh about, haha, I spoiled it. It's this happened and that's what this might mean for the character. Doing non-spoiler reviews and non-spoiler interviews with authors is, well, it's a drag for me because all of the stuff that you would talk to an author about, about the behind the scenes decision making and all of the different influences that they had for particular material, you can't talk about without giving away the material or you just speak so vaguely that it doesn't really matter much to anyone and it leaves all of these nuggets of knowledge behind. And that isn't to say that that's the best or the only way to do that, but it's the way that I prefer to do that because I like to think about things and what they mean as opposed to just what happened. So let's do some backstory to the premise of this conflict here. Chris Raid is an outstanding Black Library author. The first books of his that I read were actually a Space Wolf trilogy. I say trilogy, it in the beginning was just one or two novels. But they were set in the Warhammer 40k universe, you know, the post-heresy 10,000 years in the future version, and cataloged a former Death Watch Space Wolf trying to reintegrate into his pack. And there are conflicts against Nurgle, and specifically the Death Guard who delivered Nurgle to all of the places you just don't want Nurgle to be. And the Death Guard end up being quite the regular antagonist for protagonists in Chris Raid's stories, and that is evidenced all the more by his work with the White Scars in the Horus Heresy. Now, the title of the book, Warhawk, comes from the moniker that's given to Jaghatai Khan, who is the Primarch of the White Scars Legion of the Adeptus Astartes, the Fifth Legion. Fellow history nerds will recognize the name Chaghatai as the name of the second son of Genghis Khan from our own history. And the White Scars take a ton of influence from Asia and the Mongols in particular, so far as the historical foundation of their legion's character. While the Mongols are famous for their use of horse archers, and they were quite good at it, one of the things that made them so dangerous was the speed of their conquests and the effectiveness of the tools they used. By conquering China, basically the most advanced nation in the world at that time, they got access to all of the necessary education, siege equipment, mathematics, everything that was necessary for them to continue their conquest of the world. And Jagatai Khan and his legion embody those fast elements. To the point of just silly levels of memeing. And of course, because this is Warhammer and science fiction, instead of riding on horses, which the Khan does on his homeworld of Chagoras, he rides on bikes and they use speeders and they use very fast lightning strikes to defeat their foes. And what makes this remarkable from a Horus Heresy standpoint is that prior to the novels coming out, there was relatively little in terms of information for fans of the Legion to learn about them. The Ultramarines, of course, have lore coming out of their ears. My own favorites, the Blood Angels, have several book series. The Dark Angels have their own series. There's even some Iron Hands novels. In fact, it would be very rare for you to find somebody who painted their army to be the White Scars in Warhammer 40k prior to maybe the 7th edition Space Marine Codex release. 
But one of the reasons that the White Scars have become a favorite in terms of 30k fans is the work that Chris Ray did to expand upon their lore and particularly upon the work and the involvement of the Warhawk of Chagoras, Jagatai Khan, in the Horus Heresy. And a lot of this work was done before the Black Book, which contained the rules and the origins of the Legion in the Warhammer 30k gaming setting, was released. So Chris right here, to me, gets the lion's share, looking at you First Legion fans, of the credit so far as the development of this Legion into something that fans not only can understand, but actually really enjoy the character and the development of. And while, yes, it is a lot about their nature and their method of waging war, which basically means strike hard, strike fast, it is also about freedom and the importance of not breaking faith. And those are the main themes, the main story beats for these characters that Warhawk sets to resolve. And the building blocks for this conflict lie in past novels that I definitely recommend you go and read. Most notably, the Scars novel by Chris Raitt, and also The Path of Heaven, which details how the Scars got back to Terra. Now, one of the benefits, which is also simultaneously a drawback of writing stories in the Horus Heresy, is that the outcome has already been determined to a large degree. There are certain events that were detailed in the Visions of Heresy compendium and then expanded upon in re-releases of that compendium over the years that laid out some of the major conflicts and story beats of this war involving each of the legions. For example, this was the first place where you would learn about the ambush at Cygnus Prime and its effect on the Blood Angels, though, again, it was spoken very broadly, very broad strokes, not a lot of fine details. That's what the novels are here for. And in that same vein, the White Scar's most notable conflict was during the Siege of Terra itself, where Jakadai Khan and the White Scars, the most mobile, the fastest, and the Oath Keepers, to face the unbroken, Nurgle-infested legions of Mortarion. And this is why I say reading Scars or reading Path of Heaven is so important, because the interactions between the Khan and Mortarion are set up in those books so that this climax can have all the more meaning. That's where the benefit comes from, because if you know that something's coming, that means that you can properly build up to it. However, the end result is foregone. We know what happens. We know the end of the siege, and we understand, essentially, the victor of these conflicts. That is why, more than anything, with a novel like this and with a series like this, that the journey be as compelling as possible. Because if it isn't, well, you may as well have just read Visions of Heresy and you have everything you need. But just because you have one of the big stakes laid out in front of the reader's obvious to see, doesn't mean that you can't broaden the scope and expand on the importance of the actions there. Now, there is a point where you can go too far with this. It's like, oh, well, if he doesn't do this, then the nukes happen. And it becomes a, a story of a James Bond villain, really. The thing that keeps bringing us back to these novels is the relationships between the different characters. And since many of these characters don't last beyond the siege, this is the opportunity to tell a little bit more in detail some of the untold story and trauma of these characters. And there are satisfying ways to do this, and there are unsatisfying ways to do this. But if you want my short opinion on how Warhawk accomplishes this, then I would say it's mostly a win. 
And by mostly, I mean almost entirely. It was a fantastic book. I don't want to try and downplay it or make it sound like I enjoyed it less than I actually did, just so that I can sound smart or anything. It's just, there's a lot to go over here. <laughs> so we were talking about stakes before, and let's lay them out here. In the last book, Mortis, the inner wall of the palace was breached. And a wall breach is a pretty terrible thing to have. So naturally, terrible things follow. The inner palace is where a large portion of the civilian population still resides. There's, I mean, it's a continental-sized palace, so there's pretty much no way to evacuate everybody. And it's everything that we would expect from a siege that is doomed to see a complete victory on the part of the traitors. Rogaldorn did a fantastic job with his fortress, but it turns out that if your enemy never runs out of troops, and you can, well, it's a bit of a foregone conclusion. And that isn't to say that the traitors haven't had their own share of setbacks in one way or another, such as the Saturnine Gambit, which saw the majority of the Third Legion defeated, along with a nice, pretty chunk of the most elite of the Sons of Horus forces. However, some of the worst things that have happened as a result of this is that both of the major spaceports have been taken by the traitor forces. And these spaceports are the primary way that the largest of the enemy assets have been able to be delivered onto the planet's surface, such as the massive Titan Legios that were deployed in the last novel. And it is noted in previous novels that these spaceports will be crucial to receiving reinforcements from Gilliman should he arrive in time to assist in the siege. With these in enemy hands, their weapons turned towards the stars, even if the void were cleared by the approaching Loyalist fleet, should it arrive soon, the very defenses of the palace would be turned upon their saviors, at least to some extent. The inner palace is lost, the Loyalist forces are struggling to have an organized retreat, and the plan for defense now becomes a matter of see how much hurt we can give them on our way down. Which is a fairly defeatist thought. And those defeatist thoughts are shared at the highest levels of command in the defense, including Rogel Dorn. As you can imagine, having the one man responsible for holding this whole mess together begin to waver is going to have a massive effect on the ability of the defenders to continue. Because above all else, they need time. Well, what is this thing that could actually make a Primarch begin to doubt himself? What kind of power could stall someone like that? Could make them less effective? Could even affect the mind of someone like that? That's where Mortarian comes in. And he is not the source of only one of these problems, being how do we get reinforcements from space, or why is there seemingly mystical influence that's robbing us of our resolve? He is the reason for both of these things. With the majority of his legion lodged in the massive edifice of the Lionsgate spaceport, Mortarian is channeling the new power that he was granted when he sold himself to Nurgle by not just inflicting disease upon the bodies of the defenders, but also afflicting them with mental illness, which I think is one of the understated effects of Nurgle. And just a personal note on Nurgle here, Anytime I see anyone talking about all oh, the joys of Nurgle and them being happy and all of that, there's this Stockholm Syndrome-y feel I've always gotten from it. Personally, of the four Chaos Gods, it's probably the aesthetic I enjoy the least. 
though I have seen people just really embrace it from a hobby perspective and more power to you for that. It's just I can't get into it. So where I can't appreciate it as a fan, it certainly does make it a good bad guy for me as a foe. With a little bit of analysis paralysis going on, Jagged Icon decides it's time for him and his legion to unleash themselves and reclaim the spaceport to make a move to strike back against the traitor advance. Now, one of the things that the Khan has going for him here is that Perturabo has left the scene. And Perturabo was the one who was always planning on the sort of Sally Forth thing. He was the one who always had the redundancies and the plans within plans, from a siege perspective at least, to order the assault and to deal with any of the shenanigans that could come forth. And he was well aware of the Khan's disposition to not be behind walls. In fact, you could imagine that Perturabo and even some of the other legions would anticipate a move like this and be able to plan adequately for it. But Perturabo was relieved of his position. And he decided to take his entire legion with him, basically, yet again having another Perturabo temper tantrum. But this book isn't really about that. Where order is breaking down within the palace, the Khan is taking advantage of the confusion by organizing this sally forth from the walls onto and back to the Lionsgate spaceport. And he's doing this deliberately trying not to draw the attention of his brother, which of course fails because this is Dorn we're talking about. He's kind of a control freak. But Dorn doesn't really have the energy or the capacity to attempt to stop his brother. He just sees it as one more step on the road to destruction a feeling reinforced by Mortarian's foul magic. And while many of them may remain ignorant of the actual effects of the warp and the powers that are being used against them to this respect, the Khan is one of those few who never really underestimated the warp to begin with. From the very beginning, he knew that the Imperial Truth was a lie, and he always retained his psychers. But there's a pretty big problem, and that's... This is a demon prince Mortarian, and the last time that he and Mortarian fought, Mortarian was not expanded the way that he is now, and the Khan is perhaps lesser than he was then due to the constant fighting. So, aside from the in-universe problems of we have this mental malaise and we have this difficulty with the Lionsgate spaceport, we also have to, in this novel, answer the question, could the Khan, weakened as he is, beat Mortarian, enhanced as he is. How could that have happened? And why is it inevitably possible? Because we all know how this ends. Those are some of the stakes here, but it's the little stories and the journey along the way that really make this such a rewarding experience for the reader. Chris Ray, this is pretty much old hat for him in building a conflict between somebody versus the Death Guard, but in particular, because he is really what I consider to be the father of the modern iteration of the White Scars, he is easily able to craft this tale and weave in some of those subplots that are related to it. What this novel also sets out to explain is the origin of the Black Sword and the Emperor's Champion, which is basically the story of Sigismund and his beginning as a Black Templar. Sigismund is definitely a fan-favorite character. The Black Templars are a chapter that's very famous in the 40k fiction, and the knowledge that he was their first chapter master 
and his skill at arms, which were legendary even before it became more specifically legendary in this series, makes for a very interesting occurrence and something that I know that Imperial Fist fans have been looking forward to. And while I say it is pretty satisfying to watch that, I definitely feel like the conflict between the Khan and Mortarian is really where the heart and soul of this book lies. And to some respect, in order to build up to that conflict, you have to sort of pave the way. And a lot of the paving the way that's done in these series, and most specifically in the Siege of Terra, is a lot of panning out to a view of the broad conflict and then zooming in super, super close, generally speaking, on some of the mortals involved. And I have to say that I, while I appreciate the context that a mortal perspective brings, there's been so much of that so far in the series that it seems to just make the conflict between the Astartes characters, who I feel like are at the very center, and especially the Primarchs. I mean, this the whole Horus Heresy revolves around the Primarchs. They are the center of this wheel that is slowly turning around, and everything else is just kind of a detail going by too fast for us to see. But every time we slow down to look at things from a mortal perspective, we lose a little bit of that urgency, we lose a little bit of that pacing. It's a problem that existed within the Horus Heresy as well, though I think the way that this book handles it by not introducing too many new characters makes a big difference. Because if there are mortal characters who we have seen in previous books who get story arcs resolved in this novel, then it feels a little bit more satisfying. It feels like there's a little bit more history to that. But anytime we're introduced to a new character, generally speaking, in a novel like this, especially if it's a loyalist, we more or less expect them to die before the end of the book. And even if they don't die before the end of the siege, we don't really have anything to hook onto about why this person was important in the larger scheme of things. They solely exist to put a mortal context on what is basically a post-human war. So if it were up to me, I would have a whole lot less of the mortal perspectives that sometimes add a lot, but sometimes don't add much. In this instance, I think that the journey that we take with the tank company that joins the con out on his foray to retake the Lionsgate spaceport does certainly fulfill its task adequately. It puts a mortal perspective and a mortal viewpoint on some of the more immortal characters. So that's enough about that particular subject. I want to talk a little bit more about the significance of the conflict between the Khan and Mortarian. And even more than that, I want to talk about their personal character development during the events of this novel. So let's start with the Khan. Now, the Khan, one of the things that has been rankling him, and one of the main issues that he's had during this conflict, though you haven't seen a whole lot from his perspective since his first little sally forth across the wall, is that he needs to be free. He needs to be unchained. That his warriors are wasted behind walls and they need to be free. So if freedom is necessary from the Khan's perspective, it's the author and the novel's job to explain why. And to a certain extent, we understand that each of the Primarchs was created with a different thing in mind. And we've already had to see the Khan sort of come to terms with the fact that because of his nature, he was never close to his father, and he never got to ask him some of the questions about why, why this, why that, that he really would have liked to. Instead, he was more content to go off and do his own thing. And so 
The doubt that gets put in a character's head like that, one of the things that makes the conflict of his decision more compelling, is the idea that he has to confront not only with himself, but with everybody else who he's convincing to go along with him in this little adventure, that what they're doing isn't just a return to type. It actually has some significance. And while it doesn't have a great chance of victory, it has at least some chance of victory or a meaningful impact on the conflict at large. But how do you do that when he's essentially keeping it more or less a secret from the person who is in charge of the defense from Rogel Dorn? Now, Dorn himself, of course, is fully aware of what the Khan does, but he's kind of too despondent to do anything about it. But they never really have an honest conversation about the what's and the why's during the course of this book. And if you asked some of the supporting characters why they were doing this, it would probably come down to their understanding of, well, the con's gonna con, you know? But that isn't very compelling. It's the risk of failure that generally makes something the most compelling so far as risk-taking is concerned, because risk-taking for risk-taking's sake, I mean, it can be entertaining, but it isn't engaging. And we as the readers already know that he is at least to some degree successful in his goal of retaking the Lionsgate spaceport. So it's the quiet moments and the quiet conversations, the moments of doubt, the moments where he's being introspective or he's trying to convince people that what he's doing is right, where you kind of get to see where his character grows. And that's especially in the moments of doubt where he has to show the most resolve. And I think the Khan's best moments in this book are the moments where he slows down and gets a little bit vulnerable, especially since that's so out of type for him. And of course, it's only with a couple of people, one of them being the advisor who more or less pushed him to the road that he would need to take to get back to Terra, who is a frail mortal woman. And I say frail as in body, she is ancient, but her spirit is about as alive and on fire as you could ask for. And her name is Ilya Fravalion, and she is loved and adored by all members of the White Scars. They treat her like some kind of sacred mother, almost to, to a certain degree. And it is her organizational know-how that allows a lot of this to actually succeed. And it's a role that's very relevant to her established character from other books. And this is one of those instances where her mortal perspective, I thought, actually deepened the story. And that had a lot to do with her interactions with the Khan. Now, one of the two main moments that I want to focus on so far as the Khan's character development come from his interactions with Ilya. There's a quiet moment where she's in her chambers alone. Well, she thinks she is at least. Poof, the Khan's there. Or actually, he was there in the beginning. And she actually starts talking to him like, dare I say, an equal I know that there's this majesty that's involved with the Primarchs, and fair enough, man, that's great. But Ilya is a humanizer in terms of this book. She is able to sort of discuss, look at, and allow the reader to understand an inexplicable sort of character. Because even as difficult to understand as most Primarchs are, and we have to sort of suspend our disbelief on how immensely capable they are of ridiculous things, I mean, at one point, the Khan just picks up a Levi Leviathan Dreadnought and chucks him off the edge of the Lionsgate spaceport. And that's the cool sort of action that we want to see our Primarchs doing, because everyone's always kind of thinking, well, could my Primarch beat your Primarch? Nevertheless, this was an actual moment of character understanding that Ilya allowed. So I'm kind of undoing my own point about 
wanting a little bit less of the mortal perspectives. But in this instance, I'm talking about a character who, from the very beginning, has had this influence on the Legion. She wasn't just picked up for this novel and then we forget about her in later ones. She's here to stay. And her existence has meaning and significance to the Astartes that are really the main focuses of this narrative. But it's her perspective as someone who truly knows the Khan to the point where when she gets an instinct, a feeling, she is actually brave enough to disobey a direct order from him because she understands what exactly he was trying to do. Even if she didn't understand it right in the moment, even if it was just something that she sort of feared, nevertheless, she is still able to act upon something, an understanding that allows not just the reader to understand the con, but also the reader to get a little bit of hope along the way. And the second moment of understanding the con and his character comes from the perspective of Sanguinius. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, Chris couldn't make it through without talking about Sanguinius's very, very small part in the book, because basically that's the whole reason I read these things, right? Yuck, yuck, yuck. But no, when the Khan wasn't willing to talk to Dorn about what he wanted to do, when he talked to Sanguinius about it, Sanguinius supported him because Sanguinius understood him. And how do you know that Sanguinius understood him? He made him laugh. One of the hallmarks of White Scars and fighting has to do with the joy of battle. And it's something that they lost at some point along the way. It's a main theme of the book, Scars in general, who used to enjoy war to a certain extent, who used to go into battle laughing, are now just so worn down by the conflict that they no longer have the joy. It's like part of their soul has been lost. So that moment between Sanguinius and the Khan, where the Khan genuinely laughs at a comment Sanguinius makes about what he should do to Mortarion, really shows that not only does Sanguinius get the Khan by giving him a gift of laughter at what could be the last time they speak in person, it's also him giving his blessing to the Khan to do what he knows he needs to do. And if you're following along the book up to this point and you're getting the general sense of hopelessness, this moment of laughter really should stand out to you as a reader. It was the conversation that Dorn and the Khan never really got to have. And while it's such a short section, I mean, it's just this little action sequence with Sanguinius beating up on some word bearers. And who doesn't love beating up on word bearers? Am I right? Nevertheless, it has like it, it, the fighting almost means nothing in that section. It's all about that interaction with the Khan. It's all about almost as if the Khan is kind of seeking his approval. And if you understand the relationship, you understand that the Khan and Sanguinius go back way, way back. If anyone has read the Khan's Primarch novel, they know that Sanguinius was the first one of his brothers to actually meet him, and he met him by chasing him down out on the campaign trail. If you haven't read it, I absolutely recommend it. It's a wonderful little scene in that book where they speak in person for the first time aboard the Red Tear. But it was Sanguinius trying to recruit the Khan to support the Librarius project with him and Magnus. So they have known each other for quite some time. And they both spoke on behalf of Magnus so far as the Librarius project was concerned in the Council of Nikea. They both were somewhat vindicated in that by the way that things happened with the Horus Heresy. And here they are again at the end together. And instead of grandstanding and lecturing, Sanguinius not only likely foresees the importance of what the Khan is doing, 
but gives him his blessing. Of all of his brothers, except perhaps Horus before he fell, the Khan probably looked to Sanguinius for that sort of thing. He needed somebody to understand what he was doing. Because if he was just the Khan, if he was just, I'm going to go off and do my own thing, if I'm just going to be the stereotype, why would I even bother telling Sanguinius at all? No, he needed that reassurance, and he needed that laugh. And it was a great moment for his character. So let's talk Mortarian and the Death Guard a bit. Now, one of the things about Mortarian and the Death Guard's fall to Nurgle, especially after the hypocrisy of Mortarian's witch hunting, him being the one who raised one of the biggest concerns at the Council of Nikea about the risks of warp craft and the sorcery of Magnus the Red, the reason the Emperor disallowed the use of combat psychers among the legions. And look, he's a demon prince. It wasn't even the last one to turn demon prince, at least not of the big four. And the main narrative that's been driven about this is that more or less, Mortarian was duped into this choice by the clever machinations of Typhus, up to this point known as Typhon, but he wanted to be named after disease because Nurgle is weird. But my own booger prejudices aside, it was one of those things that just didn't quite fit in with how we imagine the Primarchs. Now, we know they're fallible. I mean, we've talked about Magnus quite a bit here. We talked a little bit about Perturabo's temper, if, if only in a little bit of a joking way. But Mortarian and all of them are insanely brilliant. Brilliant on a level that we can only imagine. Well, they are imagined characters after all. But the fact that Mortarian was outwitted, was outdone by a son of his? For Mortarian fans, that's kind of got to be a tough pill to swallow. Though, with the legacy that Typhus has, maybe that's just a point in his favor. But really you kind of look at that and you think, ah, well, if he's really, if Mortarian is really a Primarch and they're really as on top of things as they're supposed to be, how could he have allowed this to happen if it's not what he really wanted? Now, this particular story gets told from the perspective of one of Mortarian's legionaries. And I think one of the most effective descriptions of what Chris Ray has done to the Death Guard is he's fully illustrated their fall to the Chaos Powers and Nurgle's effect on them. Where before they were the redoubtable, the stolid, the inexorable Death Guard, now they are slow, they're decayed, they're dealing with that sort of Stockholm Syndrome effect where they're, they're happy to be sick and it doesn't make any sense. So these space marines who are acting sort of as Mortarian's lenses, the, the means by which us readers look at Mortarian, a lot of the time that's spent with them has to do with them coming to terms with exactly how they turned out the way they did and how they should perceive their Primarch and his role in it. Because those who are unsure with what happened or unsure about what happened, but they still want to have faith in their father figure, have to come to terms with what happened. Was Mortarian really a victim here? And it takes a demon showing one of the characters exactly what happened in order for that to make sense to this character. But if there was ever an unreliable narrator, it would be a demon. How could you trust a demon? Lies are part of what they're made of, but some lies are best mixed in with the truth. So the book teases you with some of these insights, some of these look, some of these reminiscings of the past of the Death Guard, and it starts to make you question exactly how much of a victim Mortarian was. 
And if he wasn't a victim, why would he allow himself to be thought of in that respect? So Mortarian, like so many of the traitor Primarchs, is basically not being real with himself. He's not being honest about who he is or why he is the way that he is. Why did he seek power from Nurgle? Was it forced upon him? Was he desperate for it to save himself and his legion? Or was he desperate for his own empowerment? And the journey to the answer to that question is definitely worth reading, even though this isn't my favorite sort of thing in terms of the subject matter. I'm, I'm not terribly interested in chaos. I don't really like the Death Guard. I nevertheless enjoyed the insight into Mortarian's state of mind, because that's the root of an interesting antagonist. I would dare say that Mortarian's hypocrisy is one of those things that makes him almost weirdly compelling. Indeed, if you are a reader of any of the Dark Imperium novels or any of the novels that have been put out by Guy Haley about Gilliman's face-off with Mortarian in Ultramar, then you'll know that Gilliman makes that point to Mortarian. is like, you are such a hypocrite. Look at what you've become. After all the values that you pretended to have, you have become exactly the thing that you wanted to stop everyone from becoming. How can you even rationalize this? And if you read that and then you read this, you understand what's going through Martarian's head at that point isn't, I was duped and I'm trying to cover for it. It's, I did this on purpose and I'm trying to cover for it because it gives me the trust of my legion. But the conflict that he has with his son Typhus is, is a great sort of foreshadowing of the way that the legions are falling apart, especially on the chaos side. I mean, there's a lot of that that's going on. Of course, we have Fulgrim off doing his own thing after being beaten back and his son's pretty much getting wrecked. And then you have the whole Perturabo thing. The traitors could barely get themselves to work together in the beginning. And now the loyalists are starting to fragment somewhat. But the one thing that they really have is they still are united in this antagonistic relationship towards each other. And that all comes to a head when the Khan and he meet. And we'll talk about that meeting in just a minute. I want to touch on a couple of the other story beats that are put in here before I forget to do that. And I'm going to reiterate that this talks about some pretty spoilerific stuff because this is stuff that is pretty just straight up new to the Horus Heresy itself. And I'm talking specifically about Erda or Erda, depending on how you want to pronounce it, who is basically the mother of the Primarchs. Now, it's commonly understood that the Primarchs were made as a result of a bargain material that the emperor was able to get from the chaos gods and his own genetic material but what we didn't know until the siege of terra is that there was a woman perpetual the second most powerful among the perpetuals depending on who you ask who also used her skills which involved gene science and her own biological material to create the primarchs she was their mother and that she was ultimately responsible for the warp vortex that sent the infant Primarchs across the galaxy. Now, what she was trying to do was to protect them from the future that the Emperor had planned for them, at least according to what she said. Now, we also know that the Chaos Gods had a vested interest in this happening, and it stands to reason that if there was somebody else sort of like the Emperor, someone who at least was on a power level that would scale to Malkador the Sigilite, who is considered extremely powerful, then why would we not have heard about this person after the Horus Heresy was over? Now, the reveal of this character during the Siege of Terra series feels a little bit late, 
if I'm being 100% honest. However, it is extremely interesting. So that kind of makes up for it to me. But the idea that there was another person involved with the creation of the Primarchs, that they had a mother who they never knew, that is something that adds some depth to the Primarchs and their story. And not to bring too much of the real world stuff in here, but but I know from quite personal experience that divorce is very hard on kids. And one of the things that's the worst for kids is to alienate the children from one of their parents. Now, obviously, there's a lot of reasons that go into the nuances of why something may or may not happen in terms of alienation and abuse and whatever. And this is Warhammer, so let's just pretend that reasonableness doesn't exist, I suppose. But it does kind of take that little problem, that little personal connection that I have, and bring it to a 40k size scale. What would have been different about the Primarchs if they had been raised with their mother's influence? Of course, I don't know much about her. You know, her character literally lasts until a portion of this novel, which is the spoiler. But what kind of influence could she have had? Would it have changed things? Would it have made things better? Or did her actions and involvement actually enable everything that came afterwards? Did it allow the Chaos Gods to touch her children and therefore make them more susceptible to the lures and temptations of Chaos? Temptations that maybe if they had had the doting influence of someone who acted as if their mother wouldn't have been tempted or maybe would have at least had someone to talk to about the way they were. I mean, think about this. Imagine Conrad Kurz talking to his mom. What would that look like? It raises some interesting questions, but of course, this is Warhammer. This is the Grimdark. You don't get to have nice things like moms. And this remains true for after daddy is stuck on the throne. So who do you send to resolve this loose end? Who do you send to do the most despicable thing and kill the mother of the Primarchs? Is there one character that you can think of who's just vile enough, who would enjoy it, who just loves ruining everything nice? Were you thinking Erebus? Because if you were, it was definitely Erebus. Now this interaction could have just been as simple as, well, the gods of chaos told me that this woman is a problem. We should do something about it. But instead, it was a matter of him coming to her almost worshipfully, reverently, with, you know, expounding on the virtues of the things that she did to enable all of this to happen and how the chaos powers are actually interested in having her join them in a meaningful and powerful way and that her inclusion among the pantheon could even rival the influence of the anathema himself now isn't that an interesting thing that we never expected to hear about her inclusion in this series while unexpected and perhaps a little bit late is nevertheless very interesting and while of course Erebus manages to do this thing that we don't want him to do because Erebus always does the things and kills the people that we want to see more of looking at you Argyltal there's no way that she could have survived this because if she had it would have made a huge huge difference on the way that the post-siege humanity progressed and it adds another bittersweet what if to the story of the Primarchs and the Horus Heresy. Another little storyline I want to jump into a little bit that isn't Sigismund has to do with the white scar called Taxir, which is his nickname. Now, he was one of the main feature characters in the scars. He was a white scars captain of 
kind of a rising star sort of character and his conflict with another one of the captains and his desires to act on loyalty to the emperor put him at odds with one of his friends and rivals in the legion and it ended up getting him pretty terribly wounded meaning that a lot of his body got replaced with cybernetics and augmentics which among the white scars legion culture was not a good thing nevertheless his inner turmoil at not being able to do the things he used to which was pretty heavily highlighted in the path of heaven where he's dueling an emperor's children champion and he reflects on how he could not actually have beat this person with his mechanical augmentations because he's a lesser warrior in his mind than he was before he received them it focuses a lot on the sort of loss that the white scars have to deal with but in his case there's an exception while he is dealing with his own personal despair, the rest of the Legion kind of looks at him like he's this symbol of hope, especially after surviving the wastes, carrying more or less a man and an infant across the massive battlefield in the outer palace and bringing them safely back to the front lines. I mean, it's miraculous. It's really quite fantastic. And it only cements his spirit of hope. No step backward, the mantra that he keeps on repeating to himself something that he learned from the Khan and his role and his importance as a political influence within the Legion schema is all the more apparent in this novel. Now, so far as his augmentations go, he is still pretty much, I mean, he's a post-human legionary. He's remarkable. It's not like the sort of situation with the bringer of sorrow from master of mankind, the blood angel who his augmentics just straight up didn't work. And he could barely walk, much less write or type or play the harp like he used to. And that was just sort of the canary in the coal mine situation. But with him, it was a matter of he is hopeful despite what happened to him. But that is an internal narrative, whereas with Tuxir, it's an external thing. He is an external symbol to his other Legion warriors of sort of the tenacity and the virtues and ideals of their legion that he represents but to himself he feels inadequate to a certain sense here he gets over that a little bit and that is a very satisfying journey and if you're a fan of his character i expect that you'll like his portrayal in this book he's he's probably the reader overall right we were with him since scars we saw him in path of heaven he's made his appearance in mortis and now this book he is basically the quintessential white scar despite not having the gifts that he feels like he should and i feel like there's a little bit of a message in that there for us if you want to go looking for it and there are a couple other side plots that i i don't personally feel have a lot of meaning beyond just explaining what they happen so i don't want to go into it too much but there is a scientist basically who thinks that he can come up with a way of chemically reducing all Astartes to sludge and eliminating the problem. And the custodians, of course, want to get their hands on that. So there's a bit of a chase sequence with him that involves Constantin Valdor. And if you like Valdor, you'll probably enjoy his appearances in this book. This particular subplot isn't super interesting to me on a personal level. Some people I know are really kind of crazy about it. So I'm happy to let them enjoy that. Though for me, it was more just kind of space between the conflicts that I was really more interested in. So let's talk a little bit about Sigismund and Karn. Now Sigismund, for his part, this is where he's let off the leash. And it's said in 
pretty much those exact same terms that Dorn decides to unleash him onto the foe to basically have him become a foe magnet that they're great champions who are looking for a chance to take Sigismund down will get their shot. He'll stand out there and be ready to dismantle the leadership of the traitor legions one challenge at a time. And boy, he is just as good at it as you can imagine. It's one of these instances where I kind of laughed at myself because I, I don't like it when they introduce characters just to let them die. But I, at the same time, took a lot of pleasure in watching some of the perspectives of the traitor characters as they built up these new captains or people who I really wasn't familiar with from the rest of the heresy. Maybe I just forgot their names. I don't know. It's a big series. It can be hard to tell sometimes. But the fact that there are these guys who are thinking, we're going to go, we're going to kill Sigismund, and we're going to be Abaddon there, and it's going to go great. And it doesn't, at least not for them, <laughs> as you can imagine, Sigismund being who he is. But Sigismund's plot development has been stymied for some time because he's just, he lost his surety, and surety was the thing that he needed in order to be a great duelist. However, at a certain point in this book, he gets it back, and it makes him dangerous again. Dangerous to the point where Karn, who had beaten him in a duel earlier in the series, now goes up against him, and despite the blood madness, despite the murder haze, despite everything else, he gets to think while he's fighting Sigismund. And the real interesting takeaway I had from this was actually, I, I mean, and this sounds weird to say it, it was the thoughts of a world leader champion. It was Karn's thoughts while he's fighting Sigismund. And he realizes that, you know, with all of the skill and the passion that he's bringing to bear, and it is an incredibly titanic duel that the two of them fight, he actually ends up being afraid for the future of humanity if this is what is considered a champion and why. And that was a perspective I wasn't expecting to have. So I think that that really adds a lot of depth to this sort of interaction between these two characters that we knew was going to happen. And it's another example of this sort of, we expect something to happen. We know that it happens a certain way because of pre-established lore. So you can either just let people watch something cool happen, or you can make it mean something more. And I think that Chris Wright did a good job of making this moment mean something more than just two cool fan favorite characters fight each other and we all have a good time. So with that out of the way, let's talk a little bit about the conflict between the Khan and Mortarion. And this is already dragging on pretty long. Even so, I have to talk about this. This whole gambit that the Khan is doing will fall apart if Mortarion ends up being able to live. Because Mortarion, not only is his legion in command of the Lionsgate spaceport, but he is also the one who is inflicting this mental damage onto Dorne and the commanders of the Imperial Defense. Something that if it isn't dealt with, they will not have the resolve, the will to continue the defense and last until Gilliman arrives. So Mortarian is a problem. He has to be removed. So what does this confrontation look like? And how do we look at this confrontation in a similar way to the way I just described Karn versus Sigismund, where we know that this occurs. How do we make it meaningful? But before any of that, I have to get to just the sheer entertainment factor of the con fighting his brothers. The Khan, I swear, he is the biggest smack talker of all the Primarchs. And he has some of the best one-liners when they argue. Like back in Scars when, you know, Fulgrim is like, well, I hear you do strange things to your ships. And without missing a beat, the Khan's like, well, I hear you do strange things to your warriors. <laughs> and it's like, 
Oh man. Oh, that's so good. Oh man. I mean, every time Fulgrim gets just smack talked or, you know, his face slammed into a tiny Titan, that's a good day, right? But it stays the same with his interactions with Mortarian. Mortarian, when he is first revealed in his glory to Khan, and I believe this would be probably the first time that one of the brothers has set their sights on the now changed Mortarian. The Khan just kind of looks at him for a second and doesn't say anything. They just kind of stare each other down. But finally, like the first thing that the Khan says is just like he arches an eyebrow and looks at Mortarian and goes, wings like <laughs> it's just this sort of moment and it's so brotherly i don't know it's like imagine not seeing your brother for a long time and they've changed and maybe they got like this really ugly face tattoo or something and you look at him and you're like so a unicorn huh it's it's that moment but up on a primark and chaos infused demon prince scale oh gosh it was really entertaining and if it was just there for the entertainment factor, it would have been worth it. But it actually had a bigger purpose than that. It was something that it was something that tied a lot into the Khan's overall strategy. How was he going to beat Mortarian? How do you, a weakened regular Primarch, which is still a pretty fantastic thing, but when put up against a continually regenerated warp enhanced demon prince Primarch, like how do you beat that? How how can how do you manage that? What's your strategy? And instead of wasting a lot of time in this fight with some useless banter, Chris Wright makes the banter matter to the fight. And I think that that was maybe my number one favorite thing that he did with this book. Because if you're looking at it just from the perspective of the people in the novel, not having all of the meta knowledge that we have about how this all turns out, you have to think about how hopeless the situation is. And you have to think, well, how are you going to do this? And the execution of it, I thought, was spot on. And there was a bit of a twist at the end there that I wasn't expecting. So, again, spoilerific territory here. But we have a moment of noble sacrifice. And so far as we, the readers, can understand, the Khan more or less sacrifices himself to kill Mortarian. But, of course, we know that the Khan lives, so how could he be dead? And this self-sacrifice thing matters and it, and it's something that when you have kind of an understanding of how the warp works and how symbols allow actions to have greater meaning than they would normally so what the con is doing by basically acknowledging that he's going to die and intending to die in doing this is he's turning his death and the knowledge of his death into the emotional weapon crux of his attack it is the thing that means that while mortarian can never truly die which he is more than happy to point out to his brother at this point it is what the khan needs to banish him from the battlefield because if the khan had intended to live at the end of all that the action that he took wouldn't have been enough to beat mortarian and it allows us to kind of cross that threshold of okay this is how he made up for the power difference he had a clever plan but at the end of it it involved a deep personal sacrifice. And it's a sacrifice that he echoes and mirrors with some of his greatest sons who die during the course of the heresy and the siege. So let's, I mean, let's look at some of the most important White Scars characters who have died up to this point. You have Targutai Yesuge, who is the chief storm seer, the most powerful storm seer 
and a personal friend of the Khans from before he was found by the Emperor, who sacrifices himself to allow the Legion transit into Terra. That's in the Path of Heaven novel. There's King Za, who is another character who sacrifices himself as part of a ploy to distract their enemies from their true intention, their true goals. There's another noble sacrifice. There's the noble sacrifices of all of his sons who have died up to this point in the defense of the siege, who have made those sort of noble sacrifices. And I should mention at this point that he becomes made aware of earlier in the book that Dorn pretty much lied to his face about the sacrifice needed to make the Saturnine Gambit. And he even sort of understands and thinks, ah, well, maybe I would have done the same thing, but maybe not. But I'm still mad at what you did here, Rogel Dorn. Nevertheless, the Khan is willing to make a sacrifice, the same sacrifice that his sons did, in order to stop what Mortarion is doing to the rest of the war. It's a good fight. It's worth reading. I'm not going to go step by step, play by play, and just sort of outline all of the different ways that the Khan smack talks Mortarion. But I think that opening line of, like, wings? Really? Wings? And, of course, Sanguinis gets brought up by Mortarion. He's like, oh, well, Sanguinis has wings. And the con's like, yeah, but his actually look good. I'm paraphrasing here, but... And, you know, I just have to throw that out there. He's right. Sanguinis does wear them better. Gauntlet thrown, Morty fans. But smack talking aside, I thought that it was a really good addition. And it was also something that, you know, the defeat of Mortarion and the effect that it has on his legion, much like the effects that the defeats of all the Primarchs have on their legionaries throughout the course of the book. I mean, there's... The, the death of the Khan puts his warriors into a rage akin to the sort of death frenzies that the Iron Hands went through and the psychological imprint that the Primarchs tend to have on their children is something that is consistent across the legions. Of course, we know what happens with Sanguinius and the Blood Angels. Of course, not everybody gets the Black Rage. The Black Rage is not an equal opportunity employer. Nevertheless, it does have an effect on both of them. The Khan's legionaries go into a murder frenzy, and then on the other side of it, cut off from their Primarch and his connection to the warp, the Death Guards start to become self-aware. They're aware of how disgusting and mutated they are. They're horrified at themselves. It breaks their morale and makes them less undaunted, less undefeatable, less resilient than before. And I thought that that was a very nice touch. That also explains how, despite what basically is almost an unwinnable scenario, the death of these characters has a groundbreaking and war-altering effect on things. And that's the way it should be. And I feel like that should be emphasized with a lot of these Primarch battles, is that the Horus Heresy is about these characters. Their deaths and their involvement should have a major impact on how the story and the war itself goes. And this novel accomplished that. So... I'm, I'm giving the book five stars. I have my small gripes. They're small. Even the things that I didn't like about it were executed well. I definitely recommend that you read Warhawk for yourself and enjoy the banter of Jakadai Khan versus Mortarian the Death Lord. So, with that out of the way, thank you again to Bill and Trident Wargaming. I will be enjoying this book. I, I got the audiobook as well because I... I'm, I'm busy. I have to read while I listen, while I do things. <laughs> but I have taken a lot of time to just sit and appreciate the, the quality of this book, the art that's inside of it, 
the smell of it. I, I don't know about you guys. I love the smell of hardback books. I truly wish I could get my hands on some more limited edition copies that didn't require me to just like donate a kidney in order to get off of the scalper market, but c'est la vie. And I hope that you enjoyed this review of the book. I will be doing more book reviews on this channel, of course, as time goes by. And hopefully, as time goes by, I'll be able to get some of the authors on to talk a little bit about the books. So with that rather long segment out of the way, I bid you adieu. And don't forget to take your Librarius card with you as you leave. Cheers. luck tonight buddy yeah tough new hotness more like it <laughs> sure pal same time next week sure see ya <sighs> what am i gonna do about the new hotness commando we need to talk yeah kato sicarius no it is i robute gilliman and we need to talk about your performance tonight Aw, come on robute He's playing the new hotness. What can I do? Well, the Codex says to use the terrain to your advantage, not leaving your whole army set up in the open. But, Rabute, the best I can do is this packing styrofoam that came with my dad's TV. Heresy! You can do better than that. Buy some MDF terrain from Frontline Gaming. Frontline Gaming? Isn't that that company run by the guy who sounds like he has strep throat all the time? Hey, bro, not cool. Silence! Don't get distracted. This is how you forgot to bring in your reserves. But, Rabute, I don't even know what MDF means. It's woodcut with lasguns or something. It's not important. It's quality, durable terrain made for all modes of play with different themes like desert, ruined city, industrial, aliens, and more. But I hate painting terrain. It's boring. Never fear. Frontline Gaming has painting services as well. You're right, Lord Gilliman. I should order some. But how do I do that? Where do I start? Go to www.frontlinegaming.org to find out more about terrain, miniatures, painting services, hobby articles, and events. Gee, thanks, Rabute. Any more advice for your loyal force, Commander? Not now, Commander. I have to go back and check on Marnius. Last time I was gone this long, the 500 worlds became the 375. Go ahead and check out www.frontlinegaming.org. Tell them the Chief Librarian sent you. Hello everybody and welcome back to the second segment of Horus Heresy Week here on the Chief Librarian Podcast. So for this segment, it's going to be a little bit more freeform and it's certainly going to be a bit shorter than many of the other second segments that I do. Mostly because Warhawks was a very long segment, and we're going to be talking a little bit more about things like gaming and, and whatnot in the Horus Heresy as opposed to just the lore itself. Now, when we're talking about gaming in the Horus Heresy, a lot of times it's just straight up called 7th edition 40k. And for any of you who are not familiar or didn't play Warhammer during 7th edition, 
7th edition had a lot more in common with, say, 3rd edition 40k than it does with modern 40k. Some of the key differences that a lot of people point out have to do with, for example, on vehicles in 7th edition or prior Warhammer, there were armor values and armor facings, and if your weapon wasn't strong enough to exceed the armor value when you combine the strength with the d6 armor penetration roll, then you couldn't actually hurt it. Whereas you could be firing a las gun. Heck, you could just be like stabbing uh, a knight with a, you know, a paper knife. And on a to wound roll of a six, you could actually force it to make an armor save. That's the way that Warhammer works now. But when Horus Heresy was written, it was back in the days of sixth and seventh edition. And those sorts of unit differences, let's call them, between monstrous creatures, vehicles, and infantry were a lot more pronounced than they are today. There's no keywords. There's no characters who are separated from units. That, that's another thing about the Horus Heresy is that if, you're, if you had a model that had the independent character keyword, you could attach it to a unit freely and you could leave a unit and join another unit. And often instead of having characters who had auras and ranges to those auras, instead you had something to the effect of the unit that this character is attached to gains the benefit of that character's unit helping abilities. And attaching characters to units was one of the ways that you protected characters at the time, as opposed to are there three models in between you and the character that are within three inches of the character and having the characters operate, well, more independently, say, than what the old independent character rule would allow them to do. Some of the other differences include the way that you remove models as casualties, where instead of being the target of an attack and then choosing from among the models in your unit which one dies, instead it's a matter of who is closest. Who is closest to the shooting or melee attack that was done that caused that model to be removed? So in that sense, the positioning of your units, like if you had an independent character in a unit, but you put them out front and you got shot in the face with a melta pistol and failed your save, there were only a few things you could do to try and protect him. One of them was called Lookout, Sir, which is where you would roll a dice and basically a dude would jump in front of the character and be like, no, look out, sir, and then bam, he's gone, assuming that you succeed the roll. Additionally, AP was done a little bit differently where you would have, say, an armor save of a 3+, plus, and if the weapon that was shooting you had an AP of 4, 5, or 6, it didn't have an AP sufficient enough to penetrate your armor, so you always got your 3 plus armor save. Whereas right now in modern 40k, some weapons have an AP of a minus 1 or a minus 2, where they actually modify the number you need to roll in order to save that unit. And these are just a few of the differences and changes between the editions of 40k. And it was assumed very close to the beginning of 8th edition when a lot of these older rule styles came to an end in you know, 40k itself, that Horus Heresy would quickly follow suit. Instead, the Horus Heresy team decided that instead of invalidating all of the black books, very expensive, like $100 books that they put out that had a bunch of different rules for all the different legions, all the different campaign stuff, all of the, the stuff that would modify or make invalid everything that they'd come out with, and especially since they hadn't finished coming out with rules for all the legions in that set of rules, that switching over to the 8th edition style 40k would be uh, not appropriate at the time, so far as I understand. And so they just doubled down on the 7th edition rules and decided to make it their own. 
They made some changes to the way that certain rules worked and interacted with each other. But for the most part, the rules stayed fairly consistent with what had been 40k since about 3rd edition. If someone were to, say, have stopped playing the game in 3rd or 4th edition and come back to start playing Horus Heresy, they would still be familiar with a lot of the basic concepts. Now, there were mixed feelings about how this came about so far as the community was concerned. 8th edition 40k was a new thing, and it involved a lot of changes and, to many people, some major improvements in the way that the game was played. And among the 30k community, there was some hesitancy to continue to play 30k while they were interested in the new shiny changes of 8th edition 40k. And there are some very prominent people in the community. I can I can think of a few such as, well, I mean, Paul Murphy, you know, Carl Tuttle, who had at least been into 30k to some degree, were now saying, well, we're not going to play 30k until they update the rules because I like the new rules for 8th edition 40k better. And their opinions mattered a lot to several people who adopted those opinions for themselves. And I'm not trying to make it sound like anybody abandoned the game or anything like that when they shouldn't. You know, that's that's really a bad way of looking at things because you enjoy what you enjoy and you play what you want to play. And that's the way that hobbies should be done. If you're not enjoying the way something is or if you want something to change and you're willing to wait and that's up to you. That's a personal decision and I don't think it's worth hating on. On that same note, I also feel like the sort of flip side to that you abandon the game attitude was the attitude of people who did no longer want to play Horus Heresy, looking down on people who still played in that old archaic imbalanced 7th edition rule set. I mean, even in the last episode where we did the Why I Love Dark Angels, Ben Gabbert was talking about having 7th edition PTSD, which is gloriously, gloriously overdramatic. And I love him for it. Nevertheless, there were people who didn't enjoy the old rule set as much as they enjoy the current Warhammer rule set. And the idea that people were still enjoying the 30k way to play, which after they came out with their own rulebook became more of a 7.5, if anything, it was different than regular 7th edition. But the game was always different to a certain degree because this was a game that was more about space marines fighting space marines. And that is probably the only major weakness to the Horus Heresy so far as overall popularity, because you're not you're just not going to get people who don't like playing Space Marines or non-Xenos armies to buy into the game. Now, on the other side, the the engagement of people who do play and the people who love that story and want to play in that Civil War conflict is very high. And people who enjoy playing Horus Heresy are some of the most passionate hobbyists and passionate gamers that I have ever played games with. There's something about it that combines some of the best and, in some cases, some of the worst elements of fantasy, you know, sci-fi fantasy gaming and historical gaming at the same time. And perhaps this explains a little bit of why I fell in love with it so much when I initially started playing back years and years ago, because my dad is primarily a historical war gamer. Most of the games I grew up playing until I started playing Warhammer, if it wasn't Full Thrust, the space game, which was very much in, in my interest at the time, it was playing Civil War games, you know, American Civil War games, I should clarify. There's been a few Civil Wars around the rest of the world, but I also played games in the Napoleonic Wars and the Revolutionary Wars. I also played some games of 
you know, night battles during feudal European times. There were games that were involved the Romans. And so I have a fondness for that type of gaming. And the Horus Heresy, when I started playing that, kind of scratched that itch for me at the same time as allowing me to buy into and play into the lore and the narrative of Horus Heresy. But if there were one thing I think that sells the Horus Heresy more than anything else, and it's something that sells the Horus Heresy novels as well as the Horus Heresy game itself, was that this was the time where all the Primarchs were active. And the popularity of Primarchs in general, particularly after the novels started coming out, and then reinforced by the stories that we got out of the Black Books that Forge World put out in support of the game system, was that these characters were powerful archetypal heroes and villains with tragic flaws, incredible feats of strength and depth of character that we got to engage with as gamers in a way that we hadn't beyond just experiencing some of the stories from the Visions of Heresy books. It was just small snapshots, you know, brief one or two or three paragraph summations of battles and, and small little blurbs on fan art and card art. And I would compare it to, to something to the effect of imagine if you were a fan of mythology, say Greek mythology or Roman mythology or Egyptian mythology, and you got to play a game as those characters when up until that point, it was just myths. It was just stories. But now you have these tangible things and you have this ability to simulate and role play and engage in that. And then the game system itself allows you to self-insert by creating characters that you can use in the game that could represent you and role-play that a little bit. I think that self-insertion is one of the greatest strengths of a hobby like wargaming. And where there are some instances where people are more interested in just seeing the heroes that have already been created and playing out a fantasy that you are they... At the same time, there's a large number of people who just want to act out, what if I was there? And like it or not, Xenos player or Imperial player, the Horus Heresy events had a major impact on the way that any kind of Warhammer 40k is played. Now you had the, the war in heaven between the Eldari and the Necrons and, and the old ones and all that, and that was a an incredibly important event, though, I mean, that one is now sort of the mythological we don't really have much beyond vague description sort of thing, but we know that it was important at the same time, you know, the Horus heresy, it, it, the entire history of the galaxy in this fictional universe pivoted at this point from one direction to a vastly different and depending on who you ask much worse one, but it's the, the personal betrayals and betrayal, you know, from a psychological perspective is one of the most impactful experiences that someone can go through and many of the listeners of the show can probably pick out certain instances of varying degrees of seriousness where they have been betrayed or perhaps personally betrayed somebody or something an ideal or whatever and that can have a major impact on your life so the horus heresy has this emotional impact and i think that that more than any other reason is probably the reason why, even though it didn't switch to the 8th edition rule set, I still enjoyed playing in that universe. Now, we can all have our different gripes about the different things in Warhammer rules that we like or dislike. I mean, think about uh, command points and stratagems in modern Warhammer. 
And one of the things that I dislike about stratagems, aside from some of the cool stuff that they, they do, they do let you do some really, really cool stuff. But it seems like a lot of the uniqueness in the flavor of your army dies out as soon as you're out of command points. It basically made the character of your army a resource that you could run out of. And I'm not a super big fan of that sort of thing. I like my Blood Angels to feel like Blood Angels all the time. I don't want their ability to do the things I love about them, such as flying around with jump packs and hacking things apart in close combat, to be dependent completely on a spendable resource, especially when there's sort of a hierarchy of efficiency, where some of these stratagems and rules, I would say, you know, there's about 70% of the stratagems in any given codex that never get used at all. And if it were up to me, which it isn't, I would take those things that aren't as useful, say, in a I need to save up my resources and spend it on this ability that is either highly overtuned or crucial to my overall strategy, and just incorporate those into the basic rules of the units and let the units carry the character of the faction a little bit more. But, you know, I've got to be fair. In the Horus Heresy rule set, there are just some mechanical hiccups that don't really add much to the gameplay experience. For example, and I use this one quite quite frequently, the idea that you have a unit of superhuman or incredibly evolved aliens or whatever it is, and what they can't do, what they could never do on the battlefield is shoot at one thing and charge another thing. It's you either shoot this thing and charge it or you shoot something else and don't get to charge the thing right in front of you. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And yes, it creates some gameplay choices that you have to make. But choices that you make when playing a game should have more meaning than just working around a mechanic that seems to have no real reason to exist aside from just the arbitrary nature of its creation. But let's also talk a little bit then about what some of these conflicts between the way players want to play a game and the sort of support that a game has been getting. Because, I mean, you have to you have to acknowledge the fact that Forge World has not been very good at supporting the Horus Heresy game series. They just haven't. The rule releases are much more like they were back when 40k was in the third and fourth editions, where your faction may not get an update for two to three years. In that same vein, FAQs and game support for the Horus Heresy resembles much more the ancient days of Warhammer 40k than it does the modern edition of 40k. And we can gripe here and there about balance issues in 40k. I don't really plan on getting into that so far as this segment is concerned. But nevertheless, you can't deny that getting FAQs between two to four weeks after something comes out versus maybe once every 18 months for an entire game system just doesn't really cut it. And much like back in the 7th edition 40k days, where the ITC saw that, hey, here's this game, there's lots of people want to play it, people want to play it competitively, or at least have a way of answering some of these weird interactions that aren't really covered in the basic rules, let's step in and find a way, as best as we can, to make this functional so that people can get together and play and spend less time fighting at the table and more time rolling dice. In that vein, there are sub-rule sets of the Horus Heresy that are fan-created that have been enacted and are now almost commonplace among 40k communities. And it's interesting because 
This is something that back in the day of third, fourth, even fifth edition, the internet hadn't really taken off in the in the gaming sense that it has now. There weren't really easy ways to promulgate a, a set of rules that you would come up with to help fix something and have them gain much popularity or awareness. However, there are things in the 30K community that have gone through some extensive testing and things that the community have adopted that are almost just kind of assumed to be in place. And I encountered that a little bit when I went to this Horse Heresy campaign intro day. Now, while I was already pretty motivated to play, one of the sort of hesitancies that I have with adopting a community built thing is that I, I understand how much of a slippery slope that can be. And one of the hardest things about it is for every new little rule set that you add that comes from some niche community, it adds additional layers of opportunities for misunderstandings on the way things work. And that was one of the weaknesses of 7th edition is that it became almost regional. There were regional FAQs for different ways of playing the game based on who wanted it to work a certain way. Nevertheless, I will say that I have been generally impressed by some of the care and attention that's been put into resolving some of these things in the Warhammer 30k Horus Heresy community. And I think it speaks well of the dedication and care that people have about this game, that they've gone out of their way to create some very interesting resources. And some of those I got to test for the first time this weekend. There is an Australian group called Mornival that have put out a sort of an FAQ about the way that they want to play the Horus Heresy. And one of the things they changed is the way that the psychic phase works. Now, for those of you who play Warhammer 40k right now, you understand that if you want to cast a psychic power, you have a character. They know a certain number of powers. They can cast a certain number of powers per turn. Each power has a certain difficulty to, to cast, and you roll two dice, and you see if you can beat that. And then the opponent, if they're able to, will try to deny that by rolling two dice and attempting to exceed the number that you rolled. And so far as psychic systems go, it's okay. The 7th edition way of doing it was that you would generate a certain number of warp charge. It was almost kind of like the old Warhammer Winds of Magic, where you'd roll a d6. That would be the number of, of power dice that you got to have. You would then add a d6 for every psychic level that your characters had that were on the table. And then you would attempt to cast powers, and you just basically have that pool of dice to choose from. And each power would have like a level that you would need to exceed. And when you're casting the power... You'd roll the d6, and on a 4+, plus, you would get one success off. Certain powers would require multiple successes, so, you know, you would basically, if you needed something with two successes to go off, you would roll four to five dice, if you could, to try and guarantee that that would go off, and then your opponent would use the same pool combined with their own psychic levels, if they had any, and in order to deny that, they would need a 6, barring some kind of bonus or something that they could receive. And it became a little bit of a resource management thing, but it was awfully skewed towards the people who had a lot of psychers in order to deny something. The Mornival take on this that I got to try out when we were gaming yesterday was almost a mix between that and the older 5th edition way of doing psychic powers, where you'd pick your psyker, if they wanted to cast the power, they would have to pass a leadership test. And then the opponent would attempt to deny or block that, or at least influence the role in some way. 
So you would pick your, your character and they would have a D6 per psychic level. And those D6s would basically be the resource you would consume to cast a power from that character. So you'd consume one, you'd attempt to cast the power by rolling a leadership test. If you were successful, the power would go off and your opponent basically just gets one D6 to try and turn it off. And if they roll a six, they deny it. And while I wouldn't say it's a perfect way of doing it, it is absolutely a very simple way. And by allowing the opponent to attempt to deny everything and the fact that they just need one six to deny something skews and favors the denying player a little bit more than the old system did. So for you more of all guys out there, uh, congratulations on making an improvement. I do feel like it still needs a little bit of work, at least in the presentation. And this might be me as a technical writer speaking, but, but if I was somebody who was not a longtime Warhammer 40k player and I read your explanation packet, I would not exactly know what to do. I think that the methodology needs a little bit better clarification and the formatting of your documentation makes it a little bit harder to read and to find stuff. Nevertheless, I don't want that to take away from the fact that it's obvious that these guys have expressed a great deal of care about this. And to even just create anything as a resource for somebody else to do it for free and to put it out there as a way of bettering the game is a an act of gaming courage, let's say. And I certainly have quite a bit of a respect for them doing that. As someone who was involved quite a bit in some of the ITC stuff from back in 7th edition, at least in terms of the readability and the way the information was presented, I mean, that's that's basically how I got to start working with Reese in the beginning, was that I went over there as part of a school project and I took that 60-something page FAQ thing, was able to condense and reword those FAQ questions, organize the information into something that had an outline that you could just hot click over to the section that you were looking for. And then it was organized by faction. Everything was worded much clearer. And I cut that 64 something page FAQ down to like 48 pages and made it much more user friendly and easier to, to navigate. I feel like, you know, I can offer that advice to those guys in good faith. And if they're interested in getting any of my help with that, I'm just going to throw that out there that I would be happy to volunteer and assist with making that a more readable and user-friendly set of documents that they've got. But let's not nitpick about the rules for much longer. Let's talk about just the experience I had playing Horus Heresy. And it was just a small game. It was a thousand points. It was Zone Mortalis. And gosh, I don't know. I don't know what it is about it, but it was so fun and so smooth and so fast that I had more fun with that one short game of Zone Mortalis than I think I had in the entire last tournament that I went to for Warhammer 40k. Now, so far as how this campaign is, is set up, it's very, very loose and freeform. The organizer, Aaron, was very clear that he wanted this to be something that new players could get into, something that was accessible, something where we could start small that people who didn't have fully painted armies can, you know, earn bonus campaign points or something for bringing a newly painted something to a game that day, even if the whole army isn't there. It's something that's very open, loose, and not as structured as, say, the stuff I'm doing for the Diadem War. And frankly, there is a time and a place for that. And I think that this was a good move on his part. Now, if you throw all of my 30k stuff together and I were to bring it in one list, I've probably got well over 10,000 points of stuff that I could put on the table. 
probably even more than that because you pay a points premium so far as what things cost in Warhammer 30k that when you're putting it on the table and you've been used to playing 40k and you think oh my gosh like this this one wound tactical marine costs like twice as much as my, how does this how does this happen but that feeling is a lot easier to swallow knowing that for the most part your opponents are playing and paying the same prices for those things and it builds in a kind of balance that's just right at the foundation of the game itself and of course for factions like imperial knights or solar auxilia you know the mechanicum those kind of get around those well it's basically the same thing sort of balance that's built in the 30k uh, particularly like de demons of the ruin storm they're just wacky and wild and all over the place nevertheless you can count on fighting astartes quite a bit and even in my games with some of those other factions generally speaking i haven't come up against something that i thought wow there's no way my army can interact with that and sure those things absolutely exist but I tend to have a fairly flexible sort of list that can address a multitude of threats at the same time. So we discussed the way that this campaign is going to go. And, and while I was tempted to start a new faction, I ended up just for personal and just I bought a house reasons not to just straight up order a bunch of Thousand Sons to start a new slow grow campaign with Thousand Sons. Frankly, I don't know if that would be a wise move for me at the moment though I am still very interested in trying that later. I still wanted to play with Blood Angels, and Blood Angels are my my heart and my, my soul in this hobby. And I'm sure that all of you will get tired of me talking about them the longer this podcast goes on. Just you wait until I get around to doing a full series about why I love Blood Angels. Nevertheless, one of the big draws of Blood Angels in the Horus Heresy specifically is that this is the only time that I would actually get to game with my Primarch on the table. And I want that. I want to play in that fantasy. I want to have the Warlord who is me fighting side by side with the Primarch who I admire so much as a character. And I may as well just enjoy that fantasy while it lasts, you know, while that opportunity still exists. But of course, you don't bring a Primarch at the beginning of a slow grow campaign. It'd be a little silly. So instead, I started with something that I was very interested in playing with as a character and something that I could maybe grow with during the course of the campaign and learn to use a little bit better. It's called uh, an Esoterist. Now, there is a support commander called a console in Warhammer 30k Astartes list. And a console is pretty cool because you just you pay 50 points and it's like, this is the Build-A-Bear foundation. This is the stuffing for your Build-A-Bear. A... Console can be a chaplain, a librarian, a blah, blah, blah. There's something like 20 different unique character options that a console can be in Warhammer 30k. And it's roles that don't exist for the large part in the chapters of Space Marines right now. It, this is one of the things that really sells that sort of this is a large 100,000 plus Space Marine Legion. Because you have the different sort of officers and specialists that you would expect to have in a larger force. So you've got your dudes who are basically like, I've got a big radio signal thing in my helmet. I look like a cone head and it's got like satellite dishes on it. But boy, you better believe that when I call down an orbital bombardment on your heads or an off-board artillery bombardment, that you're going to feel it because, hmm, hmm, antenna. <laughs> but the esoterist in particular is something that came out of the book 8 Malevolence. And it was this idea that, Okay, 
demons are out now. Demons are happening and we don't know how to deal with them. So we're going to assign these specialists who are probably either going to be psychic space marines who were formerly of the librarius or just new recruits that we need somebody to figure out how to fight against the demons. We need some kind of leader to help organize our forces against the forces of chaos and these demons that up to this point we believed didn't exist, but turns out are actually real. So an esoterist is kind of like a proto-librarian or a librarian who specifically specializes in hunting demons and where most space marine librarians have access to a couple of different psychic disciplines these guys have access to the sanctic demonology tree or if you're on the traitor side you can go with the malefic demonology tree which allows you to try to summon demons so you have an esoterist who is on the loyalist side like mine is and he's all about banishing demons and the traitors or even if you wanted to do a loyalist one i'm sure that there's a reason that you could try and figure that out you could have this character who's like all right well this thing exists let's see how i use it yes that's the path to corruption but not many people knew that yet right so this was you know pretty on brand for me right it's a librarian-ish sort of character it's a psyker but it's a little bit different than some of the existing stuff that i've done it was something new to try out and so i threw him in there with some crimson paladins which i use for 30k and i use them as my blade guard veterans in 40k all the time but for a Zone Mortalis game, these guys are actually pretty solid because the Cataphracty Terminator plate is so heavy that it offers them bonuses. And it wouldn't be a Blood Angels list without 10 jump troops, which I had. And it wouldn't be a Zone Mortalis game unless each of us brought a Dreadnought. Now my opponent, his name was Aaron. It was not the same Aaron who was organizing these things, but he had Salamanders and Night Lords. He really wanted to play as Salamanders. We wanted to do a warm-up game, so we did a Christmas bash, red versus green, salamanders versus blood angels game. And I'll put up some pictures of how the game went as I continued to talk about it. But it was just one of those things that we, we just threw it together and we got it done and we played this thousand point game. And it took probably less than an hour for the whole thing. I mean, plus or minus 15 minutes for just us talking and bantering and enjoying ourselves. And it was all just done in this wonderful spirit of fun. There were some hilarious fails on my part. I had a sergeant with a thunder hammer on my assault marines who failed his dangerous terrain test when I jumped packed him inside of this corridor, which is, you know, that's my fault, but he had artificer armor. So the way the dangerous terrain tests work for those who don't know is that when you take the test, you roll a D6 on a one, you fail the dangerous terrain test and it's like your model receives a wound and you still get to make an armor save. So he had artificer armor, so a two plus armor save on the sergeant. I rolled the dice. It was a it was on a two plus. I rolled another one, so I rolled two ones in a row, and then my apothecary, feel no pain. I rolled and I failed that, so I failed three rolls in a row. And the sergeant with the thunder hammer, who was supposed to go and fight this power fist, this mastercrafted power fist salamander sergeant, died on the roof of this corridor. And I was like, oh, this is going well. This is a great start. Oh, boy. But as disappointing as that was for, you know, a game thing to happen, it was also really quite hilarious. And we we just had a great time. And I got to learn and relearn some of the different units and things like for for my Dreadnought. I brought the Blood Angels unique Contemptor Dreadnought called the Contemptor and Candius, which I 
did a customization on, so it's got like magnetized removable wings to go with its huge jump pack booster. So I got to use him for the first time. I got to use the Esoterist. I had a little proxy model I used for him because I sort of threw this together ad hoc. And uh, I'm, I'm going to be building, I think, an Esoterist specific model for 30K because I think that he's pretty cool. So I build a, a power armor version of him and probably a Terminator armor version of him. I'm thinking Tartaros plate for that one so he can do some sweeping advances. But... It was fun. I had a really good time. I really enjoyed playing the game and I'm really looking forward to this, even though it's, you know, I'm, I'm definitely over prepared for a slow grow campaign. Nevertheless, if if it's going to continue to be this fun, I still have models that I can make. You know, I still can contribute and do new things with my 30K force. I've got a bunch of angels tears that are wet, you know, that are ready to be put together. I have some dawn breakers that are mostly assembled that I just need to finish with some, I have some custom jump packs I'm doing for them, but it was a really good time. And if you are interested in the Horus heresy, I would say, you know, don't let the, the state of the rules hold you back from having a good time. There are of course plenty of rumors out there about, and there's some photos even of a new Horus heresy plastic box set that will come out likely sometime. And whatever happens with that, you know, I would say, if you're waiting for Horus Heresy to become Warhammer 40k rules, if you're wanting it to make an 8th edition big switch, and you have the models and you're just waiting, you're denying yourself the opportunity to really enjoy yourself. Because at the end of the day, particularly for competitive play 40k, you can still play and play hard in the Horus Heresy and enjoy yourself. But you'll be enjoying yourself a bit more. You'll be playing in an excellent setting with beautiful models. You won't spend a ton of time on a very complicated score sheet and you can still enjoy all of that about 40K and still enjoy 30K. So this is kind of my thesis, I guess you could say to this segment is that yes, Horus Heresy rules aren't perfect, but neither are 40K rules. And if you are interested in the setting, don't deny yourself the opportunity to have a good time just because the rules aren't perfectly where you want them to be. Because I guarantee you, no matter what rule set you're playing with, no matter what game system you're using, none of that is perfect either. But if you've tried it and you're not having fun, don't force yourself into it either. Just enjoy your hobby. It's your free time. Do with it what you like. So with that in mind, let's bring this second segment on Warhammer 30k, the Horus Heresy to an end. Thank you for joining me. Thank you everyone for joining me again on this little foray into the Horus Heresy. I really enjoyed this week's episode just as a creator. This was something that I had a really good time with. I still have a lot of very positive feelings towards the Horus Heresy for all of my gripes and, and all of the rest. And 
Because as you all know, as much as you can love something, there's always a little bit of, oh gosh, I hate that about it as well. <laughs> but before we completely close out the show, I wanted to add this little thing as an addendum to my Warhawk review because I did the review and then I forgot to read this little blurb at the end, the, the afterword by Chris Raitt. And there was a section here that I wanted to highlight that I completely overlooked in my review. Like I said, there's a lot of stuff going on here. But it has to do with the inner palace section where you have Sigismund. And then there's also, of course, this section with Euphrates Keeler, who's been sort of unleashed on the civilian population of the inner palace. Now, her dynamism and charismatic power so far has been aimed at improving the lives of everybody in the worship of the emperor. However, uh, there's a section here where Chris Rake talks about sort of the overriding theme of the horse heresy is that things could have been much better and then they stopped being better and then they got terrible and so much worse that's the great tragedy of the horse heresy it's this message that keeps getting punched into our faces with every book that we read there's always something about what what could have been and what has been lost so I'm going to read this little excerpt and kind of leave this thought with you as I close out the show. Quote, We've spent a lot of time, quite rightly, showing how depraved the chaos forces become during the course of the heresy. This is the phase of the conflict, though, where the imperial side finally starts to admit to itself that unity is a busted flush, and that if humanity is going to survive, then it'll need to start considering a different kind of philosophy. In the words of the old 40k blurb, this is when they really start to forget the promise of progress and understanding, and when the grim darkness closes in for good. We see this a bit with Keeler, who begins to create an imperial cult that a citizen of the far future might well recognize, as well as both Dorn and Valdor, who under the strain of command begin to contemplate things they would never have done before the heresy. But it is Sigismund who, for me, embodies this core change most completely. End quote. And that's where he begins to talk a little bit about that sort of flipping the perspective from Sigismund seeing what Karn has become and being horrified, as opposed to what he wrote about, which is Karn seeing Sigismund and what the future of the Imperium is like and understanding that this is horrible and this needs to end. And I wanted to just sort of add this section to the book review after the fact to talk about the, the sort of the decline of faith into this dogmatic awfulness that 40k has become so famous for. And I certainly expect these themes of loss to continue through the rest of the siege, which according to what Chris has written in this section, there's only two books left. One is Sanguinius's defense of the Eternity Gate. And I don't know anybody who's excited about that particular story point. <clears throat> and the Vengeful Spirit itself. And I'm definitely looking forward to both of those. So far as the next show is concerned, this Saturday is the first game in our Diadem War campaign. We'll be doing our space battle and then we'll be lining up our first round of gaming in this in this system. So most of my hobby stuff for the next couple of weeks is going to revolve around that. So for the next episode, expect to see a bunch of different pictures. Expect to hear some conversation with Rich, Rich and Zach as I finally get some more guests back on the show. And we'll be talking a lot about the Diadem War campaign for episode 7 of The Chief Librarian. 
for hobby progress. I'm going to continue to work on my fleet. I may actually, after the fleet, the initial fleet is ready, build those esoterist models that I'm so excited about. And of course, we're getting into November, so there's likely going to be some kind of a Thanksgiving event. There's usually one or two around here in Utah where you get to just bring out your biggest stuff. And boy, I would love an excuse to get my Thunderhawk out. So maybe you can expect to see a battle report or some sort of catalog of battles that feature my Thunderhawk. And I do have a series of photos, and I was planning on doing a sort of a build log, a build guide for how I worked on this Thunderhawk from start to finish. I have all of the pictures set out. And whether or not I do that as a write-up or a segment on the show, you know, we'll see. But those are the things that are kind of coming up. Of course, there may be an Age of Sigmar episode here coming in in a bit. There's always something going on in the Warhammer hobby, and I look forward to exploring it all with you. But for now, it's time to close the doors on the Librarius. Cheers, everybody. Hey, you. Yes, you. Right there. You are listening to the Frontline Gaming Network. So what does that mean? That means that you have access to a bunch of different and interesting shows. Right now, I'm listening to a lot of Signals from the Frontline because who has time nowadays to follow on your own and get all of the latest news in the gaming hobby? It is streamed every Wednesday, and I never catch it for the stream, but I do catch it later. I especially enjoy Kicker's commentary. He is 40k hype man USA and I challenge anyone, I dare you, to try and prove me wrong or to upstage the hype that is Kicker Kalazdi. So with my recommendation in hand, go and listen to Signals from the Frontline on the Frontline Gaming Network. I am Chris Morgan and you are listening to a Creative Commons licensed podcast. Some rights reserved.